0: ID, the future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Does the fossil record support Darwinian evolution? Hello and welcome to ID, the future. I'm Casey Leskin, And today I'm speaking with Gunter Beckley, a senior fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture, and also a paleoentomologist who specializes in the fossil history of systematics of insects, especially dragonflies, which is the most diverse group of animals. Dr. Beckley earned his PhD in geosciences from Eberhard Karls University in Tübingen, Germany, and he served as curator for amber and fossil insects in the Department of Paleontology at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. So, Dr. Beckley, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today.
1: Thank you, Katie. It's nice to join you.
0: Yeah, it's great to talk to you. And we're talking today about your contribution to a book that's being released in October of 2021 titled The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions about Life and the Cosmos. It's available on Amazon.com. I'm a co-editor along with William Dembski and Joseph Holden. We certainly hope you'll check the book out because it has contributions from many leading ID scientists, such as yourself, as well as Stephen Meyer, Michael Behe, Douglas Axe, Jonathan Wells, Brian Miller, Walter Bradley, Robert Marks, Michael Egnor, Guillermo Gonzalez, and of course, many others and it addresses numerous important topics related to science and faith. Now, your chapter in the book, Gunter, is titled, Does the Fossil Record Support Darwinian Evolution? And I have to say, it's a quite erudite and thorough review of the issue. I really enjoyed editing your chapter. I've been saying this book contains tightly packed briefings, where an expert quickly brings a reader up to speed on a key issue. And I think that your chapter is really a prime example of that in the book, Gunter. So thank you for your contribution to this book.
1: It was a pleasure.
0: Great. Well, let's start with maybe just some very basic questions here, Gunther. What is a fossil and what is paleontology?
1: Now, fossils are animals that lived a long time ago and that have been preserved by some geologic processes so they are either petrified or mineralized or preserved as imprints in sedimentary layers or in filled cavities and uh, rare other options for fossilization would be embedding in uh, minerals or in tree resin, in amber. So uh, that is what fossils are. And of course, fossils are like a kind of time machine into deep time. So they show us animals that existed long ago and that don't exist anymore and show change over time. So that is what many evolutionists then say, well, that proves evolution but uh, what it really proves is that we see that there were different animals living at different times. And then we can ask, uh, what explains these differences? How did these changes come about?
0: So, Gundra, I know that you have a background in geosciences, as do I. And I'm wondering, when you've done your fossil collecting, I know you've discovered various fossil species of insects. Where have yeah. you done your field work? Where did you do your fossil collecting? And when you go out to collect these fossils in the field, I mean, I've discovered fossils before, but sometimes it's been purely by accident. I didn't go out that day expecting to find a fossil. So when you find these fossils, do you go to places where you know there's probably fossil beds, or are these sometimes accidental discoveries that you've made?
1: No, actually, uh, the place where I look for fossils is where they are really, really abundant, and where I can be absolutely sure that there are interesting new things to discover, and that is in the basements of the museum collections. (laughs) 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 Uh, I very rarely went uh, into the field and and collected fossils myself because especially in the, the issue of fossil insects, this can be very ineffective because they are relatively rare. So uh, I know fossil collectors, for example, who collected lifetime at the Solenhofen limestone and they maybe found one dragonfly in their their lifetime. So uh, if I look into the museum collection, there are hundreds of them and mostly not determined yet and a lot of new species among them. And the same is true for amber and other uh, localities. So most of my... Field work was not field work, but was museum work in the museum collections, because there are really thousands and ten thousands of fossils that still await scientific description and and research. And uh, so uh, I'm not really a field geologist. I suppose you have probably found more fossils in the field uh, yourself than, than I did. Uh, I collected fossils as a kid uh, myself in the field, just and and I still do it uh, for fun. But for the research work, it would be too ineffective uh, to wait to find, let's say, a new insect order uh, as one that I have described from the lower Cretaceous of Brazil. Uh, to find something like this would be basically a lottery win if you go collecting yourself.
0: Well, what you're doing is still very important because I'm sure that there are numerous people, probably both amateurs and professionals, who have discovered fossils. They then donate them to your museum. And if nobody goes through them to see what those fossils are, they're going to be of no scientific value.
1: Exactly. And and most people are not aware that what is exhibited at a museum, at a natural history museum, is just a percent of, of the material that is actually Uh, available in the archives of the museum for scientific research so the uh, only the real uh, let's say uh, uh, best uh, specimens are showed in the exhibition but most of the material is hidden in the basement in drawers of the magazines and uh, weights, scientific descriptions and there are many collections that are even 100 years old And uh, there was never a specialist who looked through the material and it can happen that you look at material that was collected by the generation of of our fathers or grandfathers as scientists and it's still new species. So there is extremely much work to do on, on museum collections and this would be work for generations still to do.
0: Well, that's good to know that there's good scientific research to do. Now, I want to ask you about a word. I maybe I'm going to mispronounce this, but it's the word Lagerstatt. Did I, did I say that right?
1: Yeah, the German word would be Lagerstätten or Lagerstätte in singular, which is a, a fossil locality with special preservational circumstances.
0: Yeah, those are supposed to be huge localities of fossils. I don't know if I've ever been to a, a, a Lagerstadt, but at, that would be a lot of fun. It sounds like when you, and I'm sure since it's a German word, you must have Lagerstatten in Germany where there are just huge amounts of yes. fossils to be discovered.
1: Yes, especially the, the area where I'm coming from, uh, that is Baden-Württemberg, which is in the southern part of Germany. And there are a lot of world-famous fossil Lagerstätten, like the the Holzmaden shale, for example, from the lower Jurassic. And in the neighboring state of Germany, in Bavaria, you have the famous Sohenhofen limestone, where there are large outcrops where limestone is excavated for commercial purposes. And the fossils are just, let's say, accidental discoveries by the workers at these outcrops. But even in these Lagerstätten fossils can be quite rare, and it's only because there's tons of material excavated and over long periods of time that then a lot of fossils accumulate over time. And for example, from Solenhofen, we have now more than a dozen specimens of Archaeopteryx. But if you want to find one, you can uh, excavate several lifetimes and not even come close to finding only a feather of an archaeopteryx. So uh, you can split limestone at Zohlenhoven for a day and you don't even find an ammonite. So Lagerstätten means uh, there are a lot of fossils, but lot is relative. So it can still be a quite cumbersome task to dig for fossils and find fossils there. And it wouldn't be possible without the help from commercial brickworks and and outcrops that dig for these stones for commercial purposes, because there's not enough grant money for scientific excavations at all these localities.
0: Oh, yes. You can't spend every day out in the field as much as maybe some folks would like to do that. You can't be on the field every day just looking for fossils. Now, there have been some stereotypes out there, perhaps, sometimes justified, perhaps actually not in many cases, that a lot of fossils are forgeries. There are a few famous fossil forgeries. What are some examples of those? But would you say that this is a common thing? I mean, are, should we really be worried that most fossils that are reported in, in the scientific community are forgeries?
1: No, not really. Uh, but, but this has a qualifier. So let's say if you would go on a fossil fair or fossil market for private collectors And you will see a lot of these trilobites with wonderful spines and processes from Morocco. There you have maybe a 50-50 chance to stumble upon a forgery because there's really a big market for these private fossil collectors, especially with fossils from China. I have recently seen they have now developed a very sophisticated new method to forge fossil insects from China, and they use printing now, and they print these fossils directly on the, the original stone. And you really need high magnification and really check these fossils under a binocular microscope to discover the forteries. But that is the, the qualifier. You have to distinguish between, let's say, the private fossil collector market and the professional scientific paleontologist. There have been some cases where professional paleontologists have been Confused by forgeries. Most famous case, of course, is is the famous Piltdown skull or the this Archaeopteryx, this this feathered dinosaur. But that was just one of many feathered dinosaurs, and most are original. And even this feathered dinosaur was not totally forged. It was a combination of a fossil bird and a, a fossil dinosaur, and also the fossil dinosaur was feathered. Actually, even a new species. And these two fossils were combined. To make something uh, sensational. But meanwhile, most uh, paleontologists are very aware of a risk if they buy fossils, especially expensive fossils from China, let's say, or from Russia, that before they will acquire such a specimen for a museum or publish an important work on it, they will study it with micro CT and, and sophisticated method to really be sure that they are original And with these modern methods, you can really be very certain if you have uh, studied this fossil that it's an original fossil and not a forgery. So it's some exceptional cases in the past. Even Willy Hennig, the founder of phylogenetic systematics, he once published on a fossil fly in amber and said that is the longest existing species because it's recorded in Baltic amber and it's still alive. And so this species lived without change for 40 million years. And later it turned out that this fly was a forgery. In uh, this amber piece, was hollowed, and a recent fly was put inside and this was sealed with artificial resin. And we don't really know who, who did it and for what purpose, because it's not an expensive fossil. It, it happens with expensive amber fossils that they are falsified, especially by, by Russian dealers. But in this case, maybe somebody wanted to play a trick on, on Hennig. We don't know, as it happened with the, the Piltown skull.
0: Yeah, I think you make some very important points there, Gunther, that yes, of course, there are some famous examples of forgeries, even some that have had evolutionary implications where they were claimed to be transitional forms, right. and then they turned out to be you know splicing a, an orangutan or a human skull or a, a bird and a dinosaur, as you said, together. But the reality is these are very rare, and I think that we should not assume that when a fossil is published, that it is a forgery. It is almost surely if it's made it through peer review, they know how to spot forgeries. They've able to check and they know that it's a legitimate fossil. So you can generally right. trust what is being published in the scientific community. I've got one of those Moroccan trilobite fossils, by the way. It was given to me quite a few years ago by a family member. It's quite a big one. Okay. It's probably about, uh, I don't know, seven inches long and maybe three or four inches wide. And I have No idea if it's real or not. And maybe sometime, Gunter, when you're out here in Seattle, we can take a look at it together.
1: Yeah, I mean, it
0: it does look like it, it might have been glued, but the reality is gluing it could just be, you know, it broke during the recovery process. And so you're gluing a real fossil back together. I mean, that that is done also. So, yeah, it's very difficult to tell these things. And if it is a forgery, well, You know, so I got a deal on a forgery fossil. I'm not trying to publish it. Okay, well, let's also talk about transitional forms. You talk about in your chapter, what is a transitional form? And are they still missing? And you would think that this would be an issue where people could agree on what a transitional form is or is not. But reality is, there's a lot of disagreement. And sometimes what one person, especially from the evolutionary Darwinian perspective, might say is a transitional form, might not cut it for some of us skeptics of Darwinism. So what is a transitional form? What are the different definitions of a transitional form? And are they still, by and large, missing?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's exactly right, what you said, that there's really a risk of a fallacy of equivocation involved in this question of are there transitional fossils? And Many skeptics of Darwinism and creationists say, well, all these missing fossils, uh, all these transitional fossils are absent and are missing. And the evolutionists will say, well, we drown in uh, missing links and and, uh, we have a lot of them. And actually, they talk about two different things. So when a paleontologist talks about the transitional fossils, what they refer to is just transitional in terms of uh, morphology or anatomy. So they have a fossil that has some characters of an assumed ancestor and some characters of the assumed descendants. So they are in a way a mosaic form, an intermediate form in terms of morphology, but they could be at a totally wrong time horizon, for example, because it could be a side branch uh, that has preserved some kind of archaic combination of characters. So, it is not necessarily, uh, not necessarily a real ancestor. Uh, and paleontologists rarely talk really about ancestor and descendant relationships. So, what is, uh, and these fossils, these intermediate forms, transitional in terms of morphology, these are really frequent in nearly all groups. There are really a lot of those fossils. But if we ask what does the theory of uh, Darwinian evolution really predict? It predicts that we have a gradation, a a sort of decline or a grade from one form into the other, where you would need a lot of steps of ancestor and descendant relationships uh, with small changes accumulating over time, transforming one species into the other and having intermediate steps on this way. And this is indeed totally absent in the fossil record. It's it's absent totally on the macroevolutionary level and it's even absent on the species-to-species level. So there there are even hardly any remaining examples after some textbook examples have been debunked in the past years for gradual species-to-species transitions where you would have these kind of transitional forms from species A developing into species B all this evidence is indeed absent. So transitional fossils in the terms of temporally ordered series of ancestors and descendants are absent. Transitional forms in terms of just mosaic forms with different combination of characters are quite frequent.
0: That's very helpful, Gunther, to help to define this issue of what is a transitional form and to what extent are they really found. Now you say in your chapter, That the discontinuous fossil record refutes Darwinian gradualism. And you go on to make an interesting comment. You say, the most well known popularizer of Darwinism, the infamous atheist Richard Dawkins, wrote in his 2009 best selling book, The Greatest Show on Earth, the following remarkable statement Evolution not only is a gradual process, as a matter of fact, it has to be gradual if it is to do any explanatory work. This shows that gradualism is not just one optional element of Darwinism, but that it is very much essential. For its success as a naturalistic explanation for the complexity and diversity of life. If gradualism is wrong, then Darwinism is refuted. That is such <laughs> a clear statement from Richard Dawkins as to why gradualism is so important to a naturalistic view of evolution. So I, you know, I, I know that you have many examples of fossil explosions that you go through and discontinuities in the fossil record, but why would you say that gradualism is refuted by the fossil record in, in a nutshell?
1: Yeah. So the most easy explanation I think we can again have with a metaphor that was suggested by Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called Climbing Mount Improbable. And the metaphor he uses is that he says, well, certain evolutionary transitions require something that looks like a miracle. So how did you get an eye from no eye? And this could you you could compare with you're standing in front of a mountain with a steep cliff. And to jump from the bottom of the mountain to the top of the mountain over this steep cliff is impossible. It would require something like a miracle. But on the back of the mountain, there's a gentle slope. And there you can climb the mountain step by step, small steps at a time and reach the top without requiring a miracle. So the only naturalistic way to explain these very improbable achievements of new genetic information, new complex structures originating in the history of life without requiring some kind of divine intervention would be some process that could explain how these structures come about one step at a time with only small changes where each small change would be maybe improbable, but not totally improbable, and the accumulation of many of these small steps over long periods of time would then explain how we get these big changes in, in macro evolution. But this requires necessarily this kind of gradualism that we have this accumulation of big changes over long periods of time by many small changes. And This, of course, is not represented in the fossil record, and that Darwin was quite aware that it's not that the fossil record conflicts with this prediction, this core prediction of his theory, and he appealed to the incompleteness of the fossil record, and that is what most advocates for Darwinism would still say, and would say, well, that's just because the fossil record is incomplete. But that is, if you really look at the technical data, is simply not true because we have now statistical tests to test how complete is the fossil record on certain levels. So, of course, it's incomplete on the species level, but on the level that is relevant for macroevolution, let's say on the level of family distinction, we know that the fossil record is sufficiently complete that these gaps and these discontinuities and these abrupt appearances that uh, we observe in the fossil record, that these are really data and information that nature tells us what happened. And uh, they are not just an artifact of undersampling or of, of incomplete preservation or
0: something like that. So, Gujar, I don't want to spoil your chapter in the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. You go through many examples of discontinuities or explosions in the fossil record. I know you mentioned a little bit of that already. But can you tell us what is your favorite example or maybe uh, your top two or three favorite examples of explosions or discontinuities in the fossil record that challenged Darwinian gradualism?
1: Yeah, of course. uh, And probably that's also the best known of the explosions. The Cambrian explosion must be named because there we have so much new data. And the interesting thing is that the more data are coming in, the more problematic this whole thing gets for Darwinian evolution. So, for example, until recently, people said, well, maybe there were precursors of the Cambrian explosion in the previous layers, but they could not be preserved because there were no comparable geological formations that were like the Burgess Shale. or And meanwhile, we have dozens of localities from the Precambrian with Burgess Shale-type geology and there are just algae there so so all these counter arguments against the cambrian explosion have been refuted in the the past years so the cambrian explosion would be one of my favorites then of course the sudden appearance of flying insects even very complex ones like beetles in the carboniferous uh, which is my favorite group I'm an insect paleontologist uh, that would be one example Another example, uh, which is worth mentioning, of course, is also the, the origin of flowering plants, which already bothered Darwin, this abominable mystery to which Darwin alluded, the sudden appearance of flowering plants in the lower Cretaceous without precursors in the preceding layers. And uh, then also, if we look at human evolution, the this fact that what many people may think when they read popular descriptions, that we have this kind of Complete series of intermediate forms from ape-like uh, ape man from Africa, these Australopithecines, to our own genus Homo. Uh, when we really look into the data, we see that there is a distinct break a distinct gap, also an abrupt transition between the Australopithecines, which are basically ape-like, apart from having been able to, for a clumsy bipedal walk, which may even have been a property that some or other apes in the past had, and the real genus Homo. And there has been even a scientific theory by mainstream evolutionists that was called the Big Bang Theory of the origin of the genus Homo, So even in our own uh, history, we find these discontinuities in the the fossil record. And there are dozens more that I describe in the chapter of the book. So it's a general pattern. It's not just picking and choosing some exceptions uh, from the rule, but the discontinuities and the abrupt appearances and the explosions and revolutions are the rule in the fossil record.
0: I think that's really well put, Gunter, that the pattern that we see in the fossil record is one of explosions. that tends to be the rule, and in fact, if you want to talk about exceptions to the rule, that would be a legitimate bona fide example of a transitional form where we can say that we have a clear cut example of such a thing. Those tend to be few and far between, and the general dominant pattern we see would be this pattern of explosions and discontinuities. So thank you so much, Dr. Gunter Beckley for coming on ID the Future with us today, talking to us about discontinuities in the fossil record and how they refute Darwinian gradualism. Thanks for having me. Again, the book is titled The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. I think you'll enjoy it. It's available on amazon.com. It's a wonderful resource to explore questions like whether Darwinian evolution is refuted by the fossil record. I'm Casey Leskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.